As we study the book of Haggai, we're talking about becoming a people and a place of peace. And it's such an encouragement for me to be a part of this church because we are filled with people of peace. And God has really given us a place of peace here. And so we're taking a few weeks to study the book of Haggai and talk about how do we continue to grow into that? How do we grow as a people and a place of peace? And as we do that this morning, I want to ask you a question for your self-reflection. How many of you have ever felt dirty or disobedient before God? You don't have to show it by your hands. Some of you went right up. Yeah, it's okay. I'm your pastor. I've felt both dirty and disobedient before God. And, and how can we be a people of peace? How can, how can we be a people and a place of peace when we daily struggle with feeling dirty and disobedient before a holy God? We just sang about God's holiness. He is holy other. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is true. And then if we're honest with ourselves, we're far from that. And we often feel dirty and disobedient before God. Here's what dirty feels like. It feels like somebody's done something to me, something wrong to me, and I just can't get over it. I can't clean up my thoughts, or I've done something wrong, or I continue to do something wrong. I feel dirty. I feel disgusting. I feel broken. I, I'm aware of my own unholiness, and how could God love me? I better clean myself up, because God, God surely he doesn't want to be in my disgusting presence. That's how dirty feels. How does disobedient feel? Well, it feels like I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I can't conquer that sin. I've tried to read my Bible more diligently. I've tried to do my devotions. I've tried to be more consistent with church. I've tried to volunteer. I've tried to sing harder and engage worship more and I just can't do it. I can't get up early enough. I hit snooze and I don't read my Bible and, and I continue to repeat the same sins over and over again. I'm so disobedient. I've tried and I'm tired of trying. And God must be so disappointed with me. I need, to, I need to fix myself before he would accept me. So dirty feels like I need to clean myself up before God would love me. And disobedient feels like I need, to, I need to fix myself. I need to get my act together before God will truly love me and welcome me into his presence. And, and if I want to be a person and if we want this to be a place of peace, we better clean ourselves up and we better get obedient, right? I mean, that's, that's how we often feel. I've got good news for you this morning. If that's you, if you feel, if you've ever felt dirty or disobedient before a holy, righteous God, you're not alone. The people of Israel who we're studying about here in the book of Haggai felt that way. The, the early apostles, the early disciples of the New Testament church, they felt that way. Your pastor often feels that way. The person sitting next to you, look at them, nudge them, they feel that way. You don't have to. You can have your own little individual space to feel dirty and disobedient before God. <laughs> this, this is true for all of us. Now, I have good news. You're not alone, right? We're all in this together. That's just a portion of the good news. See, it's good to be in mixed company. It's good to know that you're not alone and you're feeling dirty and disobedient before a holy God. But that's not enough. See, the, the true good news, the real good news is that God is working in us in spite of ourselves, in spite of how dirty and disobedient we feel. God is working in us to make us a people and a place of peace. 
that we could encounter God and feel his peace in the midst of our feelings of dirtiness and disobedience and that other people could join us, that we could be sent out into the world, engage with other people, and they would feel the peace of God in spite of our own feelings of dirty and disobedience. And people could come into this gathering, they could walk through our doors, and they could feel the peace of God among these people and in this place in spite of our internal feelings of dirt and disobedience. How is that true? That's what we're going to see here this morning as we look at Haggai chapter 2. And so I'm going to ask if you stand as I read Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. It's on page 791 in the Pew Bible. I highly encourage you to grab a Bible, get it open, get your eyes on God's word this morning. Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and he said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward before Stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When, there came to be, when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord." Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We are desperate to encounter you. Lord, as the psalmist says, my, my soul is thirsty. When can I come and meet with the Lord? And Lord, I anticipate meeting with you this morning, not because you reside in the building, but because you are here in your word as, as we look at it, as it's proclaimed. The word is living and active, and you are here among these people. And so, Lord, I pray that we would each encounter you. Meet us where we're at this morning, Lord Jesus, some of us feeling incredibly dirty and disobedient. Some of us f- forgetting Some of us have become blind to our disobedience and we need to be woken up. Some of us might be doing all right. Lord, regardless, I pray that you would meet us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may have a seat. Let me summarize the big idea from this text this morning, what we're going to walk through together. The big idea today is that we become a people and a place of peace by receiving God's holiness and responding in obedience. This is good news for Christians or or, or non-Christians who just feel dirty and disobedient. 
we become a people and a place of peace by receiving God's holiness and responding in obedience. So that's the big idea from the text this morning as we continue to press forward as a church asking this question, how do we grow as a people in a place of peace? That's what we're going to see in our text today. I want to walk through it and kind of look at this text chunk by chunk and then we'll kind of unpack what the statement means and how we actually receive God's holiness and how we respond in obedience towards the end. But let's first look at the text. See, the first point here in verses 10 through 14 is that unholiness is contagious, but holiness is not. See, we often feel dirty before God because unholiness is contagious. Dirt, uncleanliness, not living rightly before God, it's contagious, and holiness is not. That's exactly what God is getting, communicating to his people here through the prophet Haggai. Look at, he says, verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. So the priests were the religious leaders among Israel. He says, Ask them about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. See, holiness is not contagious. Holiness is not transferred from one thing to another. And so God's holiness, which was contained to the temple, which they were working to rebuild here in Haggai, and which the priests could go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies in the temple one day a year and, and kind of be in the presence of God's holiness, he can bring that out and transfer that holiness to the nation and to the people. Holiness is not contagious. But it goes on here to say that unholiness, uncleanliness is. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. See, this is hearkening back to the purity laws and the, the moral laws that God had given his people as they were wandering through the wilderness, and God gave them the book of the law, and God, God helped them to, he, he spoke to them and he arranged their life so that they could do life and maintain relationship with him. And so there were all these purity laws of the Old Testament, and they are asking questions about those purity laws, and the priests are answering it rightly, saying that, Unholiness is contagious. That if you come in contact with something that is considered, considered ritually unclean, you yourself will become unclean. But holiness is not contagious. It's like a person with the flu going in the midst of a room of healthy people. Everybody gets nervous about getting sick, right? Catching the flu. You reverse it. You take a room full of people with the flu and stick a healthy person in the middle is anyone worried about the healthy person affecting everyone else and them all getting cured from their flu? No. Because unholiness, uncleanliness is contagious and holiness is not. Or it's like a rotten apple. You take a rotten apple and put it in a bowl with ripe, good apples, what's going to happen? That rotten apple isn't going to turn good because it's surrounded by these good apples. In fact, it's going to affect the other apples. Right? And so... This is how we live our lives as well. We are, we are in this world with brokenness, with unholiness. This is what Haggai is getting at, what God is getting at as he reminds his people that, that you are a people who are unclean. You're dirty. You're broken. God's people are unholy. They're unclean and they're, they're affecting everything. They're infecting 
everything. And this harkens back to Adam and Eve. And this, this harkens back to original sin where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate of the forbidden fruit. And what did they do after they ate of the forbidden fruit? If you remember, they covered themselves up because they felt shame. They felt dirty. Before this, they had had this open relationship with God where they wandered in this beautiful garden naked and free and in no concerns, no insecurities. It was just Adam and Eve and this beautiful garden and God had given them everything for their good except for this one tree, this one prohibition. They disobeyed God. They ate of the forbidden fruit and now instantly they feel shame. They feel dirty. They feel broken off from their God. And this has remained true throughout the history of the world that every single person who has been born since we have the, the stain, the guilt, the shame, the dirtiness of our first father, Adam. And so we feel dirty because we're born into this. We also feel dirty because we often choose to live in the midst of dirt and disobedience, right? And so what God is getting at here is these people, my people Israel, who, I, who I'm calling to rebuild the temple and who I want to grant them my peace. I mean, the point of the book of Haggai is that God wants his people to experience his peace. God wants his people to, to experience shalom, wholeness. And he wants to grant that to them, but, but they're dirty, they're undefiled, and they can't do anything about this on their own. They are stuck. They are incapable. We also see here in this text that God, God's discipline often follows disobedience. So they had been disobedient. That's why they were sent into exile some 90 years earlier. And then God, in his grace and mercy, he brought them back to the holy city, Jerusalem, so that they could rebuild their lives. He brought them home to rebuild their lives some 20 years earlier. But the temple left unfinished, right? And so God says right in here, there's discipline that results from disobedience. Look at verse 15. It says, now then consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed upon stone in the temple. So God had called them to rebuild the temple, but they hadn't done it yet. And so God says there's a condition there. There's some discipline that's connected to their disobedience. Before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord, how did, how did you fare? When you were disobediently ignoring my instruction to build the temple, how did you fare? How were things going for you when you were disobeying my call, my command? He says, when one came to the heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. It's similar to what he said in chapter 1. If you flip back there, he says in verse 6, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put it into a bag with holes. And then if you look down at verse 10 and 11 again, he's saying, Therefore the heavens have withheld the dew, and the earth withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on the ground that brings, on the ground that brings forth, on man, on beast, and on all of their labors. See, there's discipline. God is disciplining his people. He's withholding blessing from them. He's withholding good from them because of their disobedience to rebuild the temple. And, and this is different than punishment. Punishment is like, it's like, 
uh, it, it has to do more with anger. And often, well, in the way that we view punishment, this isn't a biblical definition of the word punishment, but the way that we view it, it's often like an angry dad or mom who's just annoyed with the kids, and so they punish them or banish them to their room for a couple hours because they're sick of listening to their noise, right? That's not God's discipline. God's discipline is for growth. It, it's, it's to help us. It's like when my parents took away my season pass to Lutzen Mountains. I grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota, and I worked really hard, and, and, uh, and I bought a season pass, spent over 300 bucks on a season pass to go snowboarding all the time, and I bought a new snowboard, I bought new boots, I bought new bindings, I bought new gear, and I was ready to go. And I went a couple times, and then my report card came in. And my parents had told me, here's what we expect from you. If you're going to spend your time going to the hill and snowboarding, we expect you to put in your time to get your homework done and to maintain a decent grade level. And my report card came in, and it wasn't what we had agreed upon. And so for the rest of the year, all of the money that I had invested to go snowboarding in, my snowboard just sat there. My season pass went unused. I did the math, and I came out behind. And this is discipline. It was loving discipline by my parents to help me grow, to, to help me actually grow up so that the next year when I wanted to do the same thing, I thought I need to prioritize my studies because snowboarding is going to get me nowhere in life, but learning hopefully will get me somewhere in life, right? I had no aspirations or abilities to become a professional snowboarder. And so my parents knew what they were doing. They were disciplining me. This is like God's discipline. It's good. It, it, it's to lead us to growth. And so he says, I, I've withheld some things from you. You're experiencing some suffering. You're experiencing a lack of some of the things that you want so that you would come back to me. Look at the end of verse 17. Just look at all of verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. See, there, there's the hope. I've disciplined you. I've withheld these things. This has happened because I want you to turn to me. I want relationship with you. I want your obedience. And because they were disobedient, God brought discipline to help draw them back. And this is sometimes true for us. You may be suffering in certain areas of your life where it's tied directly to your disobedience. Like God may be tapping you on the shoulder over and over again saying, hey, are, are you ready to do this thing that I've been asking you to do and you keep neglecting it, you keep neglecting it, and the fruit of your neglect is just bearing its way out in your life? You're like, yep, I'm suffering in this way because I continue to ignore God, and God might be disciplining you with that. Now, not all bad things are discipline. And God always works, it tells us in the book of Romans, that God always works all things together for good for those who love him are called according to his purposes. So his discipline even leads towards good, towards his glory, towards our good, and ultimately the advancement of his gospel. If you are a son or a daughter of God, he disciplines you. He doesn't punish you. He doesn't fly off the handle and get angry with you. He disciplines you for your growth. And it always works out for his glory, for your ultimate good, for your eternal good, and for the advancement of his gospel. That's what we see here in this text. In the same way that God disciplined Israel for their disobedience, he often, often disciplines us by frustrating our plans and withholding certain blessings and making certain things not come to fruition. And on the flip side, this passage is showing us that God's blessing often follows obedience. Right? So if you pick it back up in verse 18... He says, consider from this day onward. So remember, the, verse 15 there, he said, consider from this day onward before you had done anything how things went. Before one stone was laid upon another in the temple, 
You, you had famine, you had drought, you, had, you, you were being disciplined. And then verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. See, now there's some obedience. Haggai chapter 1, in the beginning part of Haggai chapter 2, we see the people starting to align themselves with God. Week 1, as we look at Haggai chapter 1, the people were shifting their priorities from self, from building their own homes, their own clans, from being worried about their own gratification to actually God's glory. That was shift 1 in week 1 that we talked about. So there's actually some growing obedience here. Last week, we looked at how they had to get their eyes off of longing to return to the past and embrace the present and move on to the future. And so they're starting to move forward here. There's some growing obedience among God's people. And he says, consider from this day onward, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. So, so now they're getting to work. They're laying the, the, the foundation of the temple. There's some active and growing obedience happening here. And he says, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yield nothing. Okay, so, so there's no fruit of your obedience yet because it just started. There's a lot of discipline and bad fruit from your disobedience. There's no good fruit yet from your obedience. But look at this. He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. There's this, there's this conditional blessing that's tied to their obedience. Now, God's forgiveness of us, God's acceptance of us, it's unconditional, right? It's grace, we are justified by the grace of Jesus Christ, and we'll get there in a minute and talk about that. But God's blessings are often conditional. They're often tied to obedience. Sometimes in just natural ways, like if you do these things, these blessings will naturally result in, in general terms. If you do these things, these disobedient things, these lack of blessings will naturally result, right? And, and so... God is saying here that there's oftentimes blessing attached to our obedience. And I say often because not always. We see throughout the scriptures that God blesses people even when they're disobedient. And sometimes God disciplines people even in the midst of their obedience. Again, it, it all is for God's glory for our own good and the advancement of his gospel. But we see this happening here in Haggai. That there's some discipline for disobedience and there's blessing attached to obedience. They had started to align themselves with God. They were prioritizing him over self. They were looking to the future, embracing the present rather than longing for the past. And they were receiving, they were starting to receive God's holiness and respond in obedience. So the, the question remains, let's come back to the big idea here. How do we receive God's holiness and respond in obedience? And this text shows us that, that holiness is not transferred, that unholiness is, that we're affected by unholiness, that, that disobedience is disciplined and, and we all know that there's some dirt in us, there's some unholiness in us and there's, there's this, this will in us that wants to be disobedient. We want to do our things our own way in our own time. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. Sometimes we stiff arm God and we reject God. And so the question is, how? And if it's true, when I started this sermon asking have you ever felt dirty and disobedient before God? And I'm going to make the assumption that all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we have, and we oftentimes do. How do we receive God's holiness? And how do we respond in obedience? If I can't muster up holiness myself, if I can't clean myself up, and if I can't straighten myself up, how does this work? 
I long to be a person of peace, and I long for this church to be a place of peace, but if we're incapable of cleaning our lives up, and if we're incapable of getting our lives in line with God, what are we to do? That's the question. Here's the good news of the gospel. The first one is that holiness is the result of God's declaration. It doesn't have to do with you cleaning yourself up, church. Holiness, to be pure, to be righteous, to be clean before God, to be acceptable to God, to be cleansed from all of your dirt, it's a declaration from God. It comes from his declaration, not from your ability. Just turn two pages to the right with me and let's look at Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, this is another prophet in the same time. This is as Israel is back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. You remember Haggai talked about Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah here, another prophet alongside Haggai, is giving prophecy to the people. He's motivating the people to rebuild the temple. And I love what happens here with Joshua, the high priest. So Joshua is the high priest of the people. He's like the pastor of all pastors. He's the Pope, if you will, in their, like our vernacular to theirs. He's supposed to be the most holy, righteous guy, the appointed man of God. And listen to what happens here in Zechariah chapter 3. And this is, uh, this is again, Zechariah getting a, getting a vision from the Lord. Let's actually start in chapter 2, verse 13, because I just love this verse. It says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. God has begun to move again. If you remember, as we looked at Haggai 1 in the first part of chapter 2, God did something supernatural among the community. God moved again. Even in spite of their disobedience, God began to move in his people. He says, be silent, all flesh, before the day of the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God has come. He's stirring among you. He's ready to do something. And then chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is often, it's considered to be Jesus. I think in this setting here it is. This is a, this is a appearance of Jesus before he was born by the Virgin Mary. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Joshua, the high priest, the appointed man of God, is standing before the Lord before God, before Yahweh. And Jesus is here, and Satan is here. And the Lord said to Satan, Yahweh said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. What does this mean? Joshua the high priest is spoiled. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's God's appointed man to represent the people. He's, he's the mediator between God and man, and he's supposed to be the holiest person around, the holiest person alive. If anyone can uphold the law, it's supposed to be him. If anyone can go through the, the, the rituals, the ceremonial rituals to clean themselves up, it's Joshua. He's the guy who attends church all the time. He's the guy who does his devotions all the time. He's the guy who, who sings with the most zeal. He's the guy who prays every time somebody asks him to pray. He's supposed to be. That's who Joshua is supposed to be, the, the chosen high priest. And he's before Yahweh with Jesus and Satan, and Satan's there accusing him. It says, now Joshua, standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, he's guilty as charged. 
He's supposed to be holy. He's not. He's dirty, church. Congratulations. You're in good company. He's standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you see that, church? This priest who's supposed to be holy and set apart before God is guilty as charged. His clothes are filthy. His garments are filthy. And what does God say? God declares him as holy. He says, remove the filthiness and cover him with pure vestments. Put put holiness upon him, for I have made my son, my chosen priest, holy. Nothing by what he has done. He's guilty as charged, dirty before the Lord, incapable of cleaning himself up. Unholiness is contagious. It's coming from the priest to all the people. They're all rejectable before God. And God says, strip him of those filthy clothes and put a pure vestment, a white robe on him. For I am declaring him holy. Let's see this play out in the New Testament. Flip to Matthew chapter 8. It's about 15 pages to the right. Matthew chapter 8, it's on page 813. Now this is years later when Jesus, remember Jesus, the angel of the Lord standing before Joshua saying strip him of that filthy garment and put clean vestments on him. Now Jesus has come in flesh and he's walking among his people and a leper comes up to him. Lepers were considered unclean. They couldn't be touched. Again, unholiness is transferred. Holiness is not by the Old Testament law and by by human standards. And so people would keep their distance from a leper. They couldn't touch them. They couldn't get in their presence because they would receive the uncleanness, the impurity. It's contagious. And listen to what happens. Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, that's Jesus coming down from the mountain, from giving the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So he's just declared the best sermon ever, the longest sermon ever. He comes down from the mountain. A great crowd is following him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Unclean. Don't touch that person. It's contagious. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Do you see that, church? Holiness is a declaration from God. It's God saying, I have made you holy. It's not all of the rituals. It's not all of the religious efforts. It's not all of what you do to try and clean yourself up to come before God. When, when you feel dirty, and like, how could, God, how could God ever love me? I've got to clean myself up. I've got to better myself so that I could come into his presence. No, church, you're thinking about it the wrong way. Biblically speaking, what you need to do is remember that God has said, I've made you holy. I've made you holy. If you've reached out and you've touched me, holiness actually has become contagious from the source of holiness to mankind. Jesus is the one who can transfer holiness from God to us. It's not our own effort. It's not through going through rituals and rites and ceremonial cleansings. God makes us clean by declaring us clean through his son Jesus, the one who touches the leper and he becomes clean. So church, we receive God's holiness 
by receiving his loving, gracious, merciful touch through his son Jesus. That's it. Have you reached out your hand? Have have you allowed Jesus to cleanse and purify you? And secondly, we, we, we grow in obedience, we respond in obedience through the work of God's Spirit. Again, this is, it's like this, how, how do I do this? How can I obey? I try and I try and I try, and yet I fail time and time again. And I, I got this picture as I was thinking about this, that obedience is like, it's like a river. I think sometimes when we're disobedient, what we're doing is we're trying to do it our own way. We're going against the current. We're trying to swim upstream. And true obedience, spirit-empowered obedience, spirit-empowered obedience is like being in that river and just letting go and saying, Lord, take me where the current will. And we see that here in the text. Look back at Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. So as the people are becoming obedient, where does this obedience come from? God has declared them holy. It's his declaration by which they're holy. And they're starting to become obedient. Why? Well, they're becoming obedient because of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, And the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. See, God stirred their spirit within them. Obedience came from God. It came from them, them submitting to the Spirit of God. To them, stop trying to fight the current of what God was doing and just saying, I will go where you follow, where you lead. I will follow where you lead. And then Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. How do they get, how, how, where does the strength come from to obey? He says, work, be strong and work. Isn't that how we feel when we want to like clean ourselves up before God and and get obedient? Like, I've got to do this thing, I've got to do this thing, I've got to grin and bear it, I've got to be strong and I've got to work. God is so disappointed with me, I've got to do better, I've got to do better, I've got to do better. And God calls them to be strong and to work, but listen to how he closes it. For I am with you. Be strong and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when I led you out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. See how obedience is coming from God stirring in them something supernatural, something that they couldn't muster on their own, something that they could not produce on their own. And then this is what happens in Acts chapter 1. We don't need to flip there, but this is the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes down among the people and empowers them. And he says, you will be my witnesses. God's power from on high comes down and it resides in his people and it sends them into all the nations of the world to be his witnesses. Amen, church? So so if we want to be a people in a place of peace, we need to receive God's holiness and respond in obedience. How do you do that? By remembering the gospel. By remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and remembering that he, if you are in him, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin, if you have turned from trying to do it your own way, from trying to clean yourself up with religious duty and activity, 
from trying to become more obedient in your own power. Really, to repent, it means to turn. It, it means to quit trying on your own, surrender, and say, God, I need you. I can't become clean on my own. I've tried, and it never works. I can't grow in obedience on my own. I've tried, and it never works. And actually, man-made obedience turns to pride, to puffed-upness. That's why we have these churches that are like, hey, look at how good we are with our religious duty and activity, because they think they do it in their own power. And so if we want to be a people in a place of peace and experience the true, abiding, lasting peace that God has from us, we need to receive his holiness. It's a gift that he declares for his children. And then we need to surrender, submit to his spirit who works in us and through us for his glory, for our good, and the advancement of his gospel. Last point here. God's blessing ultimately follows the biblical but. It's okay to laugh. I had to do it. This is, so, so as we walk through Haggai, we see this obedience, this holiness, kind of this surrendering to God. He declares us holy, and, and there is blessing for obedience, and there's discipline for disobedience, but regardless of that, church, this is an amazing truth in the gospel, that his ultimate blessing, God's ultimate blessing, his spiritual blessing, his eternal blessing, always follows the conjunction, but. So yes, the people started to align themselves with God in, ha- in the book of Haggai. There was some growing obedience that God blessed. But ultimately, they continued to do things their own way. They continued to rebel. They continued to, to try and clean themselves up and trying to do things in their own power. But look at verse 19. Of Haggai chapter 2, it says, Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. See that shift? God, God is saying, regardless of what you do, because I have made a covenant with you, because I have chosen you as my people, from this day on I will bless you in spite of your disobedience, in spite of your dirtiness, because I'm sending a Savior, because I'm sending a Messiah, I will bless you. But, but makes all of the difference. This word, this little three-letter word makes all of the difference. Can you imagine? Will you marry me? Yes, but, you don't want to hear that word there. It makes all the difference in the world. A couple months ago, a tree limb came down on mine and Brittany's roof and pierced the roof. We had the insurance adjuster come out and the roofing company come out and the roofing company said, you're going to have to replace the whole roof. $12,000. Oh, but your insurance is going to cover it all. Amen? <laughs> but makes all of the difference and God's blessing follows the biblical but. This is who you are, but in spite of that, here's who I am and here's what I will do. But from this day on, I will bless you. Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we wind down our time. It's on page 976 in the Pew Bible. Listen for the biblical but that changes everything. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us by grace and grace alone. Lord, we thank you that when we were enemies of God, when we were living our lives in disobedience, when we were filled with the feelings of shame and dirtiness, you, God, worked in our place on our behalf. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us. So Lord, I pray that we would experience your love now. I pray that we would believe the gospel truth that you have declared us holy and you have empowered us for obedience with your very spirit at work in us. Lord, may we rest now in the finished work of Christ and may we receive your grace as we take communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.